still. So the question, why are we reading about everyday life? The everyday life of the Theotokos and the everyday life of our Lord. And we shouldn't be reading about theology and ethics, right? Um, that's a valid question. Um, but we're reading about everyday life because everyday life, our Lord's everyday life and the everyday life of the Theotokos is a theological question. And it is a, a, an ethical question because we know that our Lord came down, he became a man in order to make our life his own life. And then to give us his life by becoming like us, we were we are now able to become like him. And he he became a man in reality. I was saying earlier that there are these heretics called docetists who thought that our Lord was a man only in appearance. He only appeared to be a human being, he was a hologram, but he didn't have a real body, and so he didn't really walk among men. And it, that's a scriptural phrase to walk among us walk among us and to share every aspect of our nature, all the limitations of our nature. The docetists thought that this was below the dignity of his divinity to do something like this. And thus he would only pretend to be a human being. But in fact, the Holy, Holy Fathers teach us that um, out of his boundless love, he became a real human, really man taking on himself every aspect of our nature in order to heal it and in order to elevate it, to give it meaning and to elevate it also into communion with the Holy Trinity. And so the everyday circumstances of our Lord have a theological significance, which means also that our everyday circumstances should have a theological significance and a theological basis and an ethical significance, and an ethical basis. And life was very difficult in the first century AD as compared to our life, our lives. We live a life of convenience, and a life of comfort, and everything's automated for us. And that automation has created a lot of time for us. We don't have to farm and we don't have to do our own, even our own laundry our own dishes. Machines do all that. We don't have to gather firewood because we have electricity, natural gas. All these things free up our time, which we should be using that time to cultivate our soul and our, our mind and our soul in prayer and study. But, in, it, but usually what happens is we squander it. But the first century, the life of the first century Israelite was very difficult. And yet our Lord chose that time. He chose that time, that era, that way of life in order to sanctify everything, sanctify everything about us. And so Galilee, uh, Israel in general, Judea, Jerusalem, the Jordan Valley are sanctified places. They're sanctified by the presence of our Lord by the presence of his mother, of his most holy mother, and then clouds of saints and witnesses, as St. Paul says, the holy prophets of the Old Testament, but also the holy apostles and the holy fathers of the New Testament, who all inhabited and lived in those lands. Uh, the ascetics, the, uh, the, the desert fathers, many of the desert fathers who lived in the Judean desert, like St. Ephemios. St. Savas, St. John of Damascus, St. Mary of Egypt. Um, what I like about the book is it starts with the, the, uh, the life of the uh, Theotokos, the life of the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos, is it starts with the, um, this bird's eye view of, of Galilee. I'm not going to get into the geography. You should, you should look at a map. Uh, and because history happens in real places, and so geography and history go hand in hand. Uh, sacred history is that's true of sacred history as well. Um, and I'm not going to get into the, the descriptions, although these are very beautiful descriptions of the terrain. 
I want to talk a little bit about the uh, political and cultural situation, which the chapter actually addresses at the end. Now, uh, Galilee was part of, was ruled by one of the Tetrarchs, right, one of Herod the Great's sons. After Herod the Great died, the, his kingdom, which basically covered the modern state of Israel and a little, a, a few territories beyond it, basically was divided by the Romans into four parts. And we know that um, the death of Herod um, uh, allowed for our, uh, our Lord and his family to come back to the land of Israel. But instead of staying in Judea, they went and stayed in Nazareth in Galilee. Now, Galilee is a very interesting place because it was on the borderlands, one of the, uh, the borderlands of Israel. To the north, to the west, and to the east were non-Jewish peoples. Non-Jewish Semitic-speaking Semitic people, like Phoenicians and Syrians, and various other tribes of, of uh, Semites that lived in the deserts and in the towns uh, east of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. Um, and there was a strong Greek presence in those regions as well. Remember, Alexander the Great had conquered the whole Persian Empire in the fourth uh, century BC, and had and his successors had established numerous Greek cities. One of the regions that we read about in Scripture, that's right next to Galilee, is a is a place called Decapolis which is the land of 10 polis, the land of 10 cities. And its name suggests a very strong Greek presence. There were major commercial routes that connected Syria, Damascus in particular, to the coastal cities of the Mediterranean and down to Egypt that passed through the town of Nazareth, cut Galilee in half. And so there's a lot of commerce, a lot of traffic, uh, and the the we read uh, the we read in scripture the phrase the Galilee of the Gentiles because there were many Gentiles that were moving in and out of Galilee and had settled in Galilee. Galilee um, most likely was a trilingual place. The majority of the population in the towns and the villages, and there were very large towns and villages, if we read the historians of the era. Um, so these towns averaged at 15,000 inhabitants, which are very, that's, that's very large for antiquity. And so a uh, very prosperous place. Um, the, the average person spoke Aramaic, which is a, a Semitic language related to Hebrew and Arabic. And Aramaic had, for the most part, displaced Hebrew as the everyday language of most Israelites in the first century AD. Hebrew was still used in ritual in Jerusalem at the temple. Hebrew was still used in synagogue. Uh, also Hebrew was still used phrases, Hebrew phrases and more educated men, upper class men were able to converse in Hebrew. For the most part, it was it was it had either already become a priestly language, or it was on its way to becoming a priestly language. So fewer and fewer people could understand and use Hebrew in their daily lives. Nonetheless, there were people in Galilee who understood and used Hebrew. So that's the second language, the ancestral language of the Israelites, but by this point, the second language of of most Galileans. The language, however, that rivaled Aramaic was Greek. Again, Alexander's conquests had brought Greek uh, into to the Near East, to the land of Israel. Uh, the Israelites were very conflicted about Greek culture. The, there had been wars and civil wars fought uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the two centuries prior to our Lord's birth about these, these wars were about Greek culture. Uh, to what extent should Israelites adopt Greek culture, become culturally Greek? Because 
everyone around them was becoming culturally Greek. This world, culturally speaking, is called the Hellenistic world. Hellenistic is derived from the word Hellenic. Hellenic, of course, means Greek. It's the Greek word for Greek, Hellenic. Helenica, um, right? That's where we get, it's derived from that. Um, and so it's the, this Hellenistic world means the Greek-like world. Because all through Asia Minor, through Syria, Phoenicia, down the coast of the Eastern Mediterranean into Egypt, especially Alexandria, but also in Mesopotamia, northern Mesopotamia, uh, Greek had become the language of urban life. It had become the language of education. It had become the, the language of culture, of commerce. And this whole area was, was inhabited by peoples who, whose ancestral languages were different, sometimes unrelated. Coptic was unrelated. Egyptian, in other words, was unrelated to Aramaic. Uh, the languages of Asia Minor, like Cappadocian, were unrelated to Aramaic. These are, Cappadocian was distantly related to Greek. Um, but nonetheless, all these people spoke different languages and Greek became the means by which they communicated with each other. And when the Romans came and they replaced the Greek kings, Hellenistic kings, uh, the Romans used Greek to communicate with the local inhabitants because the Romans were very Greek culturally. And, and uh, aristocratic Romans, such as those who served as governors, were bilingual. They, they were taught Greek as children, in addition to Latin. Latin was very rarely used uh, by the Romans to communicate with the local inhabitants. All the communication between Rome and Jerusalem with Herod and his successors was all done in Greek. Herod, his sons, they have Greek names. Um, the influence of Greek culture now. Uh, there, how many of our Lord's disciples have Greek names? Andrew, Andreas, Philip, Philippos, right? We, we, there are Greek names all over the New Testament. There are also some Latin names like Luke, Lucas, um, which is most likely derived from Lucianos or Lucianus in Latin. Um, so, but the influence of Greek culture was, was very strong and traditionalist, Israelites tried to resist that. There was also the Jewish diaspora. Among the Jews, among the Israelites, the, the Greek culture was most made the biggest impact among those who had migrated away from the traditional homeland, from the land of Israel, to places like Alexandria, to places like Cyprus, to places like Asia Minor and Greece and Italy where there were very large Jewish communities who were Greek-speaking. And remember that the, there are so many Greek-speaking Jews in the Mediterranean world that there, there was a need to translate the writings of the Holy Prophets into Greek. And the most prominent, the most important translation of these was the Septuagint. The Septuagint. Um, and, and we've talked about the Septuagint before. I'm just going to analyze the name. I'm not going to get into the entire history. I'm going to say two things about it, the name and its status as scripture. The name Septuagint comes from the 70 scholars who translated it from Hebrew to Greek. They were commissioned by one of the Greek kings of Egypt. Uh, and since then, Greek-speaking Jews considered the Septuagint to be a second revelation. The 70 scholars were inspired by God, and the translation was not only accurate, but inspired. It was intended by God. There were a few other translations as well that were floating around, um, that were consulted, but the Septuagint was the main core. And the Septuagint is the scripture quoted in the New Testament. Okay. Um, so our Lord, we know that our Lord preached in Aramaic 
there are Aramaic uh, phrases preserved even in the Greek text of the New Testament. We know that our Lord participated in the life of the religious life of the Israelites and thus used Hebrew. But there's also evidence that he, he used Greek. In Galilee, it's likely that he preached in Greek. Remember also our, the Theotokos is from Galilee, or spent time in Nazareth. And, uh, and of course, her household was there. The Theotokos would have been also conversant in Greek, being a Galilean. Um, but there is a little bit of evidence, even in the New Testament, that that's, this is kind of departing from the, 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 what the, the, the book directly talks about, but I'm going to bring it up. Um, that our Lord actually preached in Greek. Um, there is, in, in the Gospel of, of St. Luke, let me see if I can find it. So that in the Gospel of St. Luke, we have um, a phrase, a quote from the prophet of uh, the, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, it's from Isaiah 61. And the particular, the particular quote in the Gospel of Saint Luke is in Luke four eighteen, and so when our Lord quotes, he opens. It says, "Let me read the whole passage here, or, or the, the the relevant part of the passage." It says, "He came to Nazareth." I'm reading in. Um, in Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the, broke, the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And it says, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Right, uh, that's what it says in the New Testament, it, the Gospel of Saint Luke. Now, if you go, if you check your King James Bibles, and you go to Isaiah sixty-one, you're going to find a quote that's slightly different. That's not exactly the same. Um. It's going to be a quote that is, is mostly the same, but has a few differences. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to the blind, sorry, he hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Okay, so that's basically the same, but there's differences. There's a particular, there's a particular phrase that's missing from that, what I just read, and that is recovering of sight to the blind. In the New Testament says, after the deliverance, to preach deliverance to the captives, it says, and recovering of sight to the blind. And to set at liberty them that are bruised. What, what is the origin of these differences? Well, the King James Bible that everyone reads, 
the Old Testament is not Orthodox. It's the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text, as established by the Masoretes, who were medieval scholars who undertook a textual reform of the Hebrew, of Hebrew scriptures, of the Jews, of the Jewish scriptures. And so that's the, the Hebrew text that people study today. And that's the text that was used by the scholars in England um, during the reign of King James when they were translating. But the Septuagint has a different reading, a slightly different reading. Now, the Septuagint, of course, is based on, a, on an earlier form of the Hebrew text. But nonetheless, it's quoted, the quote in the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 4, is the quote from the Greek Septuagint. And so that suggests that our Lord, when he opened the book, he was reading from the Greek Septuagint. It's also possible that he was reading from the Hebrew text that the Greek Septuagint was based on. But we have to believe that that's exactly what he said. And so that's, that's, circum that's some evidence that he even in synagogue where he went to Nazareth, they were using a Greek text. That is something that's very likely given the socio-cultural situation in Galilee. But we do know that our Lord was able to converse with Greeks. And so the Greek language was very likely a language that he did preach in, but after his death, his resurrection, his ascension, he chose the Greek language for the propagation of the gospel. Nothing is random uh, in history because Greek was widely known in the Mediterranean. And it was through the Greek language that the gospel spread across the Mediterranean and beyond into Europe. So, Moving on from Galilee, we can talk now about the particulars of everyday life, the upbringing, education, the family observances of Israelites in the first century. And there's, there's these detailed descriptions about everyday habits, customs, forms of dress, how the men wore their clothing, how the women wore their clothing. All these things are are, illustrate the fact that our Lord shared circumstances, the circumstances of every other human being that he lived amongst in Nazareth and people around the world at the time lived in a similar way of life. A particular importance to us, I think, um, is the way, if not the details, but the way, the, the manner in which our Lord and his contemporaries lived. The, the, his Israelite contemporaries, right? His, the true believers, how they live their lives, living their lives in simplicity, right? Living your life in simplicity means that you take care of your needs, right? And you take care of the, the needs of your family, your immediate needs. And what you want coincides with your needs. The modern predicament is that our wants are bigger than our needs. We, need, we want stuff we don't need, basically. We waste our money on it. We waste our time on it. Uh, we obsess over it. We're attached to it. And the spiritually speaking, the wasting of the time and the, the attachment to these things is spiritually detrimental. It weighs us down. All the fathers talk about detachment. All the fathers talk about redeeming the time that we have on this earth to work out our salvation, to ask mercy from God. So uh, a life, a simple life is having, is very simple, right? It's your wants aligning with your needs. Now, there's also another situation where um, your uh, you know, your needs can't be met. That's called poverty. And many people back then and today live in that state. And as Christians, 
we are obligated, it's all over the hymnography of, the, of Great Lent, we're obligated to help them. But we're not obligated to help them. We're not obligated to help them in order to change the world or as part of a war on poverty. We're obligated to help them because we need mercy. We are merciful and thus God is merciful with us. Right? We need God's mercy. We do it for our soul. We, need, we do it because we need God to grant us forgiveness. We, for, we, we need forgiveness, so we forgive our neighbor first, and then God forgives us. And we need mercy, so we're merciful to our neighbor first, and then God grant, grants us mercy. Um, so this simplicity of life, this uh, uh, unencumbered life, many responsibilities, many tasks, but not weighed down by uh, an overabundance of things. Family observances, family observances, the, the, the daily rituals of the, fam, uh, of the family, the prayers, the morning prayers, evening prayers, the meals, but also the feast days. All of that establishes a rhythm, establishes a pattern. That's the structure of our everyday life. As we move through the days, through the weeks, through the months, through the years, the, the, the structure of our life is uh, prayer, daily prayer, and then the prayers associated with the various feasts, and of course the fasts. And we know that the, the Jews, the Israelites of the first century, uh, had feasts just like ours. Some of the feasts coincide with ours. Passover is a, a prefiguration of the Jewish Passover was a prefiguration of our Pascha, of our Passover, of the, of the real Passover. And they also had Pentecost. And they had the Day of Atonement. We have 40, 40 plus days of atonement um, in our calendar. But just like our calendar is full of feasts and fasts, the, the calendar of the Israelites was full of feasts and fasts. Right, where they, they worshipped God, not just in their minds or in their spirits, which they did, but they worshipped God with their bodies as well. Remember, the Judaic law also pertained to the body. All these symbols that, that prefigured, that, that prophesied the coming of God in the flesh, all those symbols were, were built into their everyday reality, built into the feasts, into the fasts, to their dietary rules, to the way that they conducted their business, the relationships that they had with each other, all of that was defined by the holy prophet Moses, who was inspired by God on Mount Sinai. And the, the, those rules all ultimately point to Christ. So Christ, Christ structured their lives. Just like with us. We are on the other side of Christ's incarnation. And so the incarnation of Christ structures our entire life, our whole way of life, the relationships we have with each other, the, the way, we, can, the, the way we, we experience our day. Everything comes from uh, all, our entire way of life should, be an, uh, should flow out of our Christianity, and in particular, our relationship with the Holy Eucharist. Our relationship with the Holy Eucharist, our preparation for communion are keeping the grace of communion after we commune and those cycles of preparation and and watchfulness and observance anticipation and fulfillment fasting and feasting all those are centered around christ so we have the church of the old testament and the church of the new testament essentially engaged in the same activity right and then we have of course that generation of, of the Theotokos, of, of, our, of our Lord's family, his, his brothers, his relatives, his disciples, that bridge the gap between, between the two. And they are our patterns. The Theotokos is our pattern. Uh, education. There's a nice discussion about education. 
how uh, the Israelites were very, because their, their religion was based in scripture. And so being able to read was very important. Being able to read was very important to them. And it was also among traditionalist Israelites, this was the way to make sure that they keep their identity. They don't just become Greeks culturally. Um, although their brethren, their, their relatives in Cyprus and in Alexandria and in Asia Minor and in Greece, they, they culturally, they were indistinguishable. Outwardly, they were indistinguishable from Greeks. But inwardly, they, they too kept the law and they read. And many people underestimate today how literate the ancient peoples were. Uh, and it's estimated, for example, in ancient Athens that a large percentage of the population had a functional literacy of, of men, at least, and possibly also uh, a large percentage of aristocratic women, over 50% had a functional literacy. You learn the alphabet and you can read what's inscribed on buildings, right? Greek is a little easier to learn than Hebrew, admittedly, with the script. Nonetheless, though, um, we know that in the first century AD, the Israelites established schools in every village. Um, and so there were schools, there were public schools, um, communal schools, in other words, uh, in, in Nazareth. Possibly our Lord participated in that. Most likely these schools were established when he was an adult or after his death and resurrection. But in the first century, there was a lot of concern about the education of the young, the continuation of, of the culture of the true believing people and the civilization of the true believing people. I think a very important discussion in this book is the discussion on manual labor and domestic tasks. One difference between Greeks and Israelites was that the Greeks believed that manual labor was not noble, right? They believed that working with your hands, they called people who worked, this is of course an aristocratic perspective, an aristocratic conceit, because the vast majority of Greeks throughout history were farmers who farmed for their survival and had a completely different attitude, probably their attitude. There's a book by a, a classicist that uh, that's called The Other Greeks, which means the majority of Greeks, he's talking about Greek farmers. They have a different, different perspective on things. But Athenian aristocrats, for example, thought that the people who work with their hands were vanafsi. Vanafsos later becomes uh, an insult. Vanafsos is a rough character. <laughs> um, thick hands and so on and so forth. Um, and so for them, these aristocrats, what they valued was the life of leisure, which did not mean laziness or seeking entertainment, but it was the life of the mind. Leisure, scholi in Greek, means the absence of work. That's why we say ascholume in modern Greek when we're saying I'm working on something. That's right? And so we have ascholia is my, um, we say meti ascholise. What is your profession? What is your, what's your job, right? But scholi is the absence of work. Aristotle says that we're to use our scholi, our leisure, in order to cultivate the mind, right? But also in order to celebrate the feasts. So that's the aristocratic, there's something redeemable and something important in what they say, but we can't take them for the, we can't take them literally uh, the ancient Greek philosophers and the ancient Greek aristocrats and to, in their attitude towards labor because there's something very important in labor too. The Israelites, and very likely most non-aristocratic Greeks, praised labor. It was very noble to work with your hands, to have a skill. This was one of the duties of the Israelite father, in addition to having their sons circumcised and redeeming them um, and teaching them the law, they were also required to teach them a skill, to teach them some kind of skill, some kind of art. And by art, I don't mean, you know, being, uh, you know, a, a 
an artist, an oil painter, right? Although that, that could be good too. An artisan, someone who takes raw material, whether it's stone or wood um, or anything, and shapes it into something that's useful, creates things, right? And, and follows the rules of the craft and has an ideal image in his mind and takes that ideal image, image and materializes it and turns it into something, creates things. Our Lord was a carpenter. His father was a carpenter. This is exactly what they did. Carpentry at the time was very difficult, right? With, you had to fell the trees and you had to cut planks out of them. And all that took a lot of labor. It also took a lot of skill. And they learned these skills to their perfection. So they, they became masters in their crafts. And they were able to provide for their families because the, the Israelite father who could not provide or did not provide for his family was cursed. And there were religious sanctions against such people. Deadbeat dads, we would call them today. But deadbeat dads are those who don't support, don't support their families. Um, obviously, assuming they're able-bodied. If they're not able-bodied, it's a completely different question. Um, and so their, their sons learning skills, skills that they, that they owned. They didn't have to own property. They had their skills and they had their tools. St. Joseph probably owned some farmland that they tilled, his family tilled on the side or allowed animals to graze on or probably both. But his main occupation was as a carpenter. And this is a lesson for us. We have to, in our, with our children, we have to teach them skills. And especially today, I teach at a university. I can tell you that the vast majority of students in the university don't belong in a university. The vast 90% of my students don't belong in my classroom, not because I'm better than them, not because they're stupid, because scholarship is not for everyone. Scholarship is not for everyone. Not everyone should be a scholar. It's the, let me say, put it more directly. Not everyone should be a scholar, but especially in this day and age, most people, perhaps all Orthodox Christians, should not go through universities. At least not these universities, not the ones that we have. Because today, universities are essentially re-education camps. Um, there's a question, why should they not become scholars? Because scholarship is something that you're called to. And not everyone is called to scholarship. Who is a scholar? A scholar is, is the word scholarios. That's where it comes from. It comes from scholi. It's, it's leisure. Someone who doesn't work with their hands, but spends all their time studying and makes their living teaching. That's who a scholar is. Someone who studies and teaches. We can't have a society full of scholars. In fact, I was in a meeting earlier today where we were saying we've produced too many PhDs and they don't have jobs now. And so people who spent after undergraduate, their undergraduate studies spent anywhere between six to 10 years pursuing a doctorate, they're stuck teaching part-time jobs at multiple campuses because there aren't enough and academia is contracting the economic problems caused by COVID are reducing our budgets. We, we haven't hired anyone in years in our department in the last three, four years. Um, and so not everyone should become a scholar from that perspective as well. You need, people need to support their families. You need to have a job that, that allows you to have a family. Otherwise we become monastics, but scholarship is a calling and to have a fully functioning, fully functional society. Not everyone has that calling. Not everyone is, is going to be a scholar. Who's going to, who's going to teach. We need, we need people who have skills and going to a university in order to pursue some kind of degree that you're never going to use is a waste of time. It's a waste of money. And it's putting people in spiritual danger 
putting young people in spiritual danger because these are ideological re-education camps, the vast majority of universities. I have good colleagues. I, I like my colleagues. However, I don't agree with my colleagues. And my university is certainly not the worst university in this regard, but there are many other universities. The majority perhaps of other universities are in, in, our, in my area um, are very dedicated to a system, systems of ideas that are uh, explicitly opposed to Christianity and to Christian doctrine. And, those, and their purpose, the way they understand themselves in the social sciences and in the humanities and even many scientists is to, is to uh, de-Christianize students. So this is a, a very big spiritual danger. But the good news is, is not everyone and most people do not have to go to university. Everyone should have a skill. The second reason why university education is, is not for everyone is because the, what it's become today is training for being a corporate servant. And most people today, when they think about careers and success, think about working for large corporations and receiving large or sizable salaries from these corporations. But we become dependent on them. And very easily, they could force us to do things that we don't want to do. And if we don't do those things, we can be fired. We can be basically uh, turned into a non-person and, and, not being, and, and not only fired, but not be hired anywhere else, blacklisted, deplatformed. All that stuff is happening today. They're all re it's real and it's happening to Christians. Uh, there's another question. The Washington Post just posted an article stating that the White House is in the process of passing a bill that states community colleges will be free. This is perfect for easily brainwashing our youth. Community colleges are slightly different institutions. Community colleges, you can learn skills. Why am I saying all of this? Well, on the one hand, we have to protect our youth. Talented, smart, young people should go to universities that we trust. The majority of our youth should learn skills because the skill, you could be fired, but you still have your skill and you can work for yourself. The skill is also something that, uh, a craft is also something that teaches us about the spiritual life. We know that the Holy Desert Fathers, they made sure that their disciples had, knew some kind of craft Ergohiron is what it's called in the, in the uh, writings of the Desert Fathers. Working with your hands. You can't be praying all the time. I mean, we pray unceasingly, right? But we can't be, the, 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 the human being is not made just to be focused on immaterial things. But it's also where, where human beings are also made to work, to live in a physical environment. And, and the Desert Fathers, even though they're, they're engaged in, uh, in constant prayer, they also work with their hands right? they, for uh, protection from temptations. Because if you're idle, the temptation is idleness, not doing anything, thinking that you're praying, but doing nothing. Idleness is the mother of many passions. It's the mother of many temptations, and many have lost their minds trying to live this bodiless existence. So even the Desert Fathers recommend crafts. By crafts, I don't mean arts and crafts. I mean real skills, building real things, making real things. Uh, and St. Paul was a tent maker. Our Lord was a carpenter. And many other Holy Fathers had similar uh, uh, vocations. The same thing with domestic tasks. There's even greater propaganda against the domestic tasks of women. Right? That somehow this is chaining women. And, and motherhood in particular, which motherhood is what, by, is what connects women to the domestic tasks, right? taking care of children. 
motherhood in particular, the war on motherhood is about liberating women and making them live as individuals, unconnected to other people. But at the end of the chapter, there's a very interesting discussion about this. This is on page 310, which says commentary. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to comment. The Theotokos now is our pattern for this. The Virgin Mother believed from the very beginning in the Messiahship of her Son and that scriptures were fulfilled through Him. Yet she behaves just as she was before all these great gifts and graces came upon her. Amid obscurity and a mundane existence, she leaves all to God and claims no works, honor, or reputation for herself. She continued to do the most menial of tasks. Each day, the same tasks would be endlessly repeated. She is not swollen with pride nor vaunts herself. She brings no attention to herself as someone special or as the mother of the Messiah, but remains in the shadows. Her whole existence can only be viewed in relation to her son. This is very important. Feminism rejects this idea. Her whole existence, it says, can be only viewed in relation to her son. Feminism rejects the idea that women, should, their existence should be defined by their relation to their children. But you know what? God in his providence created us, willed us to be born in particular moments, among particular people, to particular parents, and wills us to be the parents of particular people. He, in other words, all the relationships we have are provided by God. God for, provides for them. Because he provides for our salvation. They're all there for our salvation. We cannot be saved alone. The lone Christian is no Christian, said the ancients. We cannot be saved apart from these relationships. So the relationship between spouses, the relationship between children and the parents are all part of God's plan to save us. And so, yes, we are defined by those relationships. I am a father. I am a husband. I am a son. And the church has used these very intimate relationships to explain what she does when she calls priests father. Right, father, spiritual children. Right, again, this priest is defined by his relationship to his flock. The flock is the spiritual children. The spiritual children are defined by the relationship to their father, and that relationship saves both of them. It saves them. It's saving. If obviously we're following God's commandments, it's a saving relationship. In this case. Her whole existence can only be viewed in relationship in, in relation to her son. Not only saved the Theotokos, but it saved us. That's, a, that's unique to this particular relationship. It saved us and continues to save us. And it's because of that relationship that, that we have any chance of saving ourselves because it's only through the intercession of the Theotokos that we will be saved. St. Sophronios, Patriarch of Jerusalem, wrote that divine love so inflamed her that nothing earthly could enter her affections. She was always burning with this heavenly flame and, so to say, inebriated with it. It's love for her son. And then we have a very, a very moving quote by St. John of Cronstadt on page 311. Truly she is most holy, firm, steadfast, immovable, unchangeable through all eternity in her most exalted God-given holiness. For the all-perfect God, her Son, has made her also all-perfect. This is all, the all-perfect human existence, all-perfect perfect feminine existence. On account of her great humility and of her love of purity and of the source of purity, God, of her entire abandonment of the world and entire attachment to the heavenly kingdom and above all because she gave herself to him to be his mother bore him in her womb and afterwards in her immaculate arms 
nourished him with her immaculate milk, he who feeds all creatures. She cared for him, caressed him, suffered and sorrowed for him, shed tears for him, lived her whole life for him alone, and was wholly absorbed in his spirit, one heart and one soul with him, one holiness with him. How exalted, how wondrous is the unity and love and holiness of the Immaculate Virgin with her divine Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So she is the paradigm of everything that is good. The paradigm that teaches us how we should live and how we're saved. And the paradigm that challenges the modern world and all of its false hopes and false teachings. There is no hope in the world. There, the world is hopeless. The world in the spiritual sense of the world, the teachings of the world are hopeless. But there's only one hope and that hope is God. And when we hope in God and when we have faith in him, and we unite our will with his will, and we follow his example and the example of his mother, we become united with him, we share in that intimate unity that he and his mother have, that relationship that saved us. And then when we are part of that relationship, all of our relationships that make sense, and they're all good, and they're not to be fl fled from. So it's 8.40. We had some technical difficulties, and we, but we're on time. Uh, I'd like to ask for, uh, to open up the floor for any questions or discussion points, if anyone has any. Okay. If there aren't any questions, then uh, we can call it a night and um, continue with the Great Compline, uh, each in our own homes, if you haven't done the Great Compline already. For those of you who have never read the Great Compline, I really highly recommend it. Try, it, try reading it a few times. Um, and I think you'll, be, you'll benefit spiritually from it. So I hope everyone has a, a good night and a blessed week. And we will regroup again next Tuesday at the same time.